Charlie Faint is an active duty Army intelligence officer. He's the deputy director of the Modern War Institute at West Point. He has previous assignments throughout special operations, including JSOC. He has seven deployments in addition to operational tours in Egypt, the Philippines, and Korea. He has three master's degrees. He's currently a PhD candidate. He's co-author of Violence of Action, the Untold Stories of the 75th Ranger Regiment in the War on Terror. He's executive director of the Second Mission Foundation, owner of the Havoc Journal, and not least importantly, he is the secretary on the board of directors of the Veterans Repertory Theater. It was uh, great to have Charlie on as our first real guest on Savage Wonder. Um, I wasn't ambitious. Uh, Charlie's a known quantity with me. Uh, we've done a lot of episodes of the Weekly Havoc together, and we've known each other for a while. But there were a lot of subjects that he and I hadn't talked about before. Um, so we uh, we dove right into a lot of heavy stuff. We talked about his mankind innately good, talked about reconciling being an academic and a warrior. We talked about why veterans don't represent themselves better. Um, Charlie is, uh, as he says in the episode, he is a, the eternal student. And uh, as a result, he has an awful lot of accumulated knowledge. And it was a pleasure to be able to talk to him and let the conversation go where it needed to. So I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. Sit back and relax. You're about to hear the savage wonder of Charlie Faint. All right. What's up, Charlie? What's up, Chris? (laughs) Seems like we do this a lot. (laughs) Sometimes we do it twice in the same day. I know. I know, like today, where I'm yep. going to bore you senseless for a little while, and then we're going to go do it again, and you get to hear the same talking points twice in one day. No, I think it's going to be great. I think you and I have a lot to talk about. I always have a good time. Yeah, and it's, uh, I think today's a day for Afghanistan stuff, too. I, I think there's going to be hard for me to stay away from that. So that's the redundant part, I think, that we might Absolutely. get to. Um, so I thought since this is the pilot episode that we'd also just kind of do a little bit of level setting on what Savage Wonder is, kind of talk that through, and then dive into the mystery wrapped in an enigma, cocooned in a riddle that is Charlie Faint. <laughs> hey, my favorite subject. Let's do it. <laughs> so, um, so Savage Wonder itself, I know you and I have talked about this, and the reason to everyone listening why Charlie is the the test jumper on this podcast is that he has perhaps unwisely hitched himself to the, uh, if not the star, the orbiting planet that is this, uh, that is this podcast because of his association with vet rep, um, the veterans repertory theater, uh, which is the nonprofit that I started, uh, back in February. And Charlie is our, what do you know? You're a secretary, right? You're a secretary. Yeah. And uh, so it made sense on that level. And then, of course, because Charlie has a ton of stuff uh, in his background that we never really get to on our other podcast on the weekly Havoc, which we do for Havoc Journal, because we try to stay more issue focused there. So this is a chance to kind of talk to people associated with Vet Rep or people that kind of uh, somehow ping on that uh, artistic warrior 
aspect of uh, the Veterans Repertory Theater and talk to them more in depth so that we don't have a defined subject and we can just kind of let the conversation go where it may, Um, which is why Charlie shot me a Facebook messenger yesterday and said, hey, do I need to be prepped on anything? And I was like, pretty much just yourself. And he was like, I need to do a lot more work on that. (laughs) So yeah, no, this is good. Uh, So Charlie, let's... um, there's so much I want to ask you and it's weird because for all the times we've talked, this has been a thing where we haven't really gotten to delve into just the personalia of each other. Um, I want to start kind of out of left field with you on something that I don't think you and I have ever really talked about you with all the things you've done. How has faith impacted that? Where does faith line up in that for you? That's a really interesting question, especially to lead off with, Chris. So I was raised Catholic. Uh, it, my my mother was Catholic. My father was Baptist, but he wasn't particularly observant. So we attended Catholic church growing up. And I remember particularly, I was an altar boy at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, when my, my dad was doing his stuff there in the 82nd and JSOC, a couple other units. And I I was into it. I mess, met my best friend through religion in school, Mike Warnock. Uh, we both went to Sunday school together. We both went to Westover High School together. We were both in the Boy Scouts. So it was interesting to me, but I I didn't quite get it. I didn't quite I wasn't quite there as a Catholic. And when my wife and I got married, she's an observant uh, Presbyterian. So we d- we made it, we decided that when we started having children that we would start going back to church regularly. And we've done that ever since the last 17 years since we've had kids. So I, I didn't really get into religion until I got into fifth group, started jumping out of airplanes again and went to Iraq the first time. And I found myself praying every night before I went to bed. I had this little, this little ritual I'd go through. And then I thought it was, you know, I shouldn't just pray and believe in God when I need something. So I, I believe in God. I think it's important. I pray every night, but I, I'm not, I'm not too into organized religion, Chris. I think that's where I'll leave it. Yeah, I can see that. It's funny. That's one of the things I do think military service brings out in a lot of people. I think uh, it doesn't necessarily push you into religion, but it definitely pushes you into assessing your whys and into strengthening that support channel that you have. And I know for I was the same way. Uh, I, I started to get a lot more serious about religion and faith faith uh, more than religion per se. Um, but uh, on deployment, I, I think that's just a very natural tendency. And then the catch is, yeah, do you stick with it regardless so that it doesn't have to be a life or death situation for you to keep that up? What do you think of the, I know there, especially in at Bragg, there's, you know, a relatively strong uh, evangelical segment. Did you run across that? Did you? How did that impact you? What did you think about organized religion, especially when it intersected with the military? Sure, I never had any problem with it. I think uh, it, it it's meaningful for a lot of people, and I I respect that. It doesn't. It's not just Christianity, Islam, or Hinduism, or paganism, whatever, whatever people want to believe in, and they have their own beliefs. I'm fine with that. Uh, it doesn't really impact me, so I, I'm fine with with them doing, carrying on however they like in terms of their religious beliefs. So yeah, Chris, I've never had any problem with it. I've seen it. I know that it, it, it can be divisive. Anything extreme can be divisive. And I've heard about that, but I've never seen it myself. 
Yeah, I've always thought if you if you wanted to make the perfect modern day American warrior from the ground up, I think you would uh if you had to pick a faith, you'd either make them Mormon or Muslim because both of those have so many second order effects, whether it's being a Mormon and going on mission, uh learning a foreign language, integrating in a foreign culture, or uh or Islam where you're really embedded in such a foreign culture that obviously we deal a lot in Muslim countries, uh, to have that background, that familiarity, that affinity with it. I thought those would be the two religions that if I was building someone in a lab from the ground up, like say, Hey, that's the ones to look for. If you're really casting about, but you're trying to be an awesome soldier, go with those two. I don't know. That's just my, (laughs) (laughs) That, that was one of my favorite thoughts that I had one night. And I was like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Those are both good ones, and and I've met plenty of Mormons, fewer Muslims, but we still have plenty of them in the ranks. And I remember one of the reasons I kind of came to religion on deployment was, as you know, Chris, when you're out there, you got a lot of time to sit there and think. So for much of my young life, I was unconvinced one way or the other. I guess I was agnostic. But just looking at it logically, for me, if you walk it back, where did we come from? Okay, we came from X, we came from this, we came from this, we came from this. Eventually, you get to a place where you can't explain it through science. Okay, we got here through the Big Bang. So what happened before that? So for me, at that point, when you walk it back as far as you can, wherever it is, either to uh, uh, creationism or Big Bang Theory or whatever, eventually you get to a point where science can't yet explain it. And for me, any option is equally likely at that point. So I choose to believe in God. Other people don't. And I, I think that uh, God has given me a lot of good things in my life, and I'm very appreciative of it. What's a bad why? I mean, I can think of a couple, but I mean, I'm sure you've come across people where it's like, hey, man, whatever it is you're praying to, and I put prayer in air quotes, uh, you know, because um, it might not be have a religious overtone, but um, I have a feeling I know where you're going to go with this, but I'm going to throw it out there anyway. What's a bad why, a bad reason to do things? So I think narrow self-interest in wanting to hurt other people are to the, so there are bad religions. We don't need to talk about which ones they are. And there are, (laughs) there are, there are, there are several um, things, even about Christianity. If you read the old Testament, it's, it's pretty heinous uh, what some of that old Testament stuff's in there. But I think that in most cases, most people who follow a specific religion are well-meaning, they want to get along, etc. But I think we can look at the history of just about any religion and see where people have taken that and used that for political purposes and almost always into violence. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's funny. I think there's something to... I, I, I think I can find exceptions where... Um, well, let me ask you. Do you think there's value in aiming to hurt people? Do you think there's Do you think there's something where... Uh, if you have a enough clarity to go, this person is good and this person's bad, I'm going to make this decision. Or is that something that just presumes a level of intuition and foreknowledge that really no one should touch? That's a fantastic question. A very deep, a second deep question right off the bat. Yeah. So obviously there's as, no foreplay on the show. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no yeah. foreplay whatsoever. Yeah, no foreplay whatsoever. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I think, as a professional soldier, I think most soldiers will say, absolutely. I, I can see cases where we want to hurt people. I wanted to hurt plenty of people when I was in Afghanistan and Iraq. And I think uh, in the main, those people probably deserved it. 
but I, th- I don't think it was, I think that was a, a moral mm-hmm. call that I made more than a, a religious one. And people can argue about it. And I'm not saying that I was correct. I believe I was, but other reasonable people might disagree. But I th- absolutely think that there, there is a moral relativism. And I think that some things are better than others. I value some things over others. And I think sometimes when those values clash, then some people will see that violence is the only way to solve them. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I was trying to think, do you think there is an actual defined good and evil? So my wife, Lilla, who you know well, because you guys work together at VetRep, Lilla and I used to argue about this a lot. And I think I think people tend to see the world in what they have in their hearts. So Lilla sees the world generally as good. She believes people are innately good. They, that they can do bad things, but they're, they're innately good. I disagree. I think p- the nature of man is inherently selfish and fearful and violent. And I think that whenever – and I think man I'm, – I'm including the race of man, men and women – have to be compelled to behave in a way that's beneficial to society. And when you strip that veneer of civilization away, people revert to what their true nature is. And that's violent, fearful, and – and uh, greedy. So I think people are innately bad. She thinks they're innately, innately good. That's probably kind of the age old disagreement. Yeah. It's interesting. I, I was thinking of while you were talking, I actually, I think you're both right. And I've thought of this um, a bunch. The first time I, th- I really started to think of it was when I was doing um, a prison chaplaincy. And I remember um, thinking every week uh, when I would see these guys you know, is there a, um, I mean, you would, it was funny. My spider sense would tingle every Sunday that I was with them. Like you come in and like, there's just, you know, you never ask what somebody did or why they're there, but man, there was just some bad voodoo going on and you could just feel it. And where I was mostly, I I bounced around to a bunch of different facilities, but the one I worked at the most was the tombs in downtown Manhattan which is really where they take people right after they've been picked up. So um, they're not in any sort of, you know, prison uniform and you can still see whatever scars they have from whatever got them arrested or whatever incident precipitated them being there. And I remember thinking, uh, you know, what am I doing here? And here I am going through the Lord's prayer with them and um, going through the 23rd Psalm. And I do believe that man is innately good in the absolute, the problem is in the relative that there's an absolute and a relative and in the, sh- and let's call the relative, the short term, if that helps. And that in the short term, you know, we're, we're trying to get to that innate goodness, but there's a lot of blockages in the way. And unfortunately we have to be held to account for where those mess ups are. And the more closely we align with something that ultimately is not actually true to us, whatever evils it is that we're holding on to, the more uh, we will have to pay that price. So, you know, if you're the, you know, bad guy overseas holding a gun to a little girl's head and a sniper takes you out, I, uh, you should, the sniper should still be able to believe. Yeah, he was innately good. Unfortunately, he was allied so closely. He had made such a bad choice and was clinging to that bad choice so strongly that I have no choice but to move him to the next plane of existence where hopefully, 
he and God can have a bit more of a conversation and start to straighten him out. And uh, I don't know, that was the best I could square it. How does that strike you? I think that's a great way to look at it. I think you and, and Lilo are probably closely aligned. I take a more Hobbesian view of life being nasty, brutish, and short. And I think that's that's how people normally see it as well. I think that's heavily influenced by realism and in international politics. But that's what I saw when you're dealing with disaster relief, like down in Florida, when you, when you right. peel that away, you, people revert to looting, things they don't even need to live, to killing, to fighting. And in Iraq, my last tour there, one of my, one of my jobs was to review some of the stuff that we captured from Al Qaeda. And there's raw video of them sawing the heads off people while they're still alive and brandishing it. And you've seen this stuff, Chris. I mean, everybody can see it. It's on the, it's on the internet, but the, they were recruiting people with that. And, IS, and, and ISIS was doing the same thing. These brutal murders make people want to join the organization. And I just I think that good people, if they were innately good, would be repulsed by that. But people resorting to their base nature find that attractive, and they want to join up so they could do it themselves. Yeah, I think there's uh, – I mean, look, I, I'm, I'm debating things that obviously I, I don't know. But to the best I could see, I think evil has a great sales pitch. Um, I think the instant gratification of being able to smite your enemies or, you know, uh, I was thinking I'll, I'll lighten this up with something. Uh, I don't know if you saw that Ricky Gervais show uh, extras, but there's like uh, one point, you know, he's becomes this celebrity and he starts to meet his fans and he's just appalled at like how terrible his fans are. And they're just, you know, uh, just people you never want to associate with. And he's horrified that, uh, so he tries to, uh, kind of escape from them and go to this enclave where only celebrities are. And then all the celebrities look down on him. So he ends up at the end of the episode, back at the old bar with all of his fans who are ridiculous individuals. But he's like, well, Hey, at least they like me. And, and that's got to count for something. But one of his fans is a guy called count Fuckula. And he's like, why do they call you count Fuckula? And he's like, because when I see something, I just got to fuck it. And that's what I think. And, and it was an example of like, this is somebody you would never want to hang out with. Um, and obviously, uh, just in, in the comedy setting, it was pretty funny. But that that to me is, uh, let's call that an embrace of your baser passions. And I think there's a good sales pitch for that. Um, you know, you've got plenty of stimulus through media venues, advertising, film, whatever. Um, most films from John Wick to The Matrix to other non Keanu Reeves based films are all, um, you know, it's a very romantic nihilistic, uh, orgy of, I am finally unleashed from the bonds of normal behavior and I can just slaughter everything in my path because some wrong has been done to me or to my little dog or whatever. And that gives me carte blanche to act as I see fit. Um, and, uh, and you know, in small doses, I mean, who doesn't like a good shoot 'em up and, and something like that? I, I get it. Um, but that's a great sales pitch, uh, if taken too far or actually, or taken literally, uh, to, uh, nihilism. And that's a strong sales pitch that evil has. Yeah, absolutely. And while you were talking, I was thinking about kind of the, the duality of religion or any type of belief structure. On the one hand, religion, for example, gives us a great framework to live our lives. Don't cheat, don't steal, don't kill. That's, that's very common through most, certainly most monotheistic religions. At the same time, though, if you look long enough at any large body of work like the Bible, like the Quran, like, like critical race theory, like anything, you can find justification to do just about anything. And I think people 
innately want to hate something. And if your religion or if your belief structure or something else, your politicians, your military leaders, whatever, gives you an excuse to do it, that's going to be attractive to a large segment of the people. So I'm going to ask you this because I, I know you enough, I think, to ask you this, and it's something I've I've never noticed about you. I have, and I, I know I've made fun occasionally about your practice stance of radical neutrality, but I have never seen your blood pressure raise. Now, admittedly, we haven't been doing our interactions; have never been ones that necessarily would make your blood pressure raise. Is there something you hate? Do you ever look inside yourself and go, man, these people or this kind of thing or this situation, what really pisses you off? What gets your blood going? So there's any number of things, but I think like, like you, Chris, and most vets, after seven deployments, it's all relative. Like I'm not going right. to get pissed off because some dude cut me off going into to, to Staten Island or something like that because the car didn't blow up. Nobody's shooting at me. My late day at work. Uh, doesn't cost somebody their lives or something like that. So there's very little that I, that I will outwardly get upset about. Of course, I'm very protective about my, my daughters and my wife and things like that. And, uh, I don't like conspicuous displays of disrespect, but it's normally when it's done to somebody I care about, like for myself, I'm a big dude. I don't get messed with a whole lot. I don't have, I've got a lot to lose at this stage in my life and I'm old, I'm fat, I'm slow. So there's not a lot of use in me getting in a fight over something, especially as consequences of getting in the fight are, are outweigh the consequences of whatever I'm defending. Now, of course, I, I, I will do what's right. But in my stage in life, I, I don't really need to get upset about a, ho- a whole bunch. So what, about think, in, what about intellectually, though? Do you, is there oh, yeah. stuff that you read? And, you, and certainly, uh, obviously, you've written a ton at, at Havoc. Yeah. Um, but is there stuff that you read or that you go, I'm going to talk to myself in the mirror for three weeks straight if I don't get this off my <laughs> chest? And, you know, like, like, I mean, what really gets you going that you that you find yourself seeing red over? Well, it's really interesting. I, I have so many different friends from the different parts of my life, and many of them are ideologically extreme, in my opinion, and they're on opposite ends of the spectrum. And what really annoys me is the constant attacks, uh, normally by my friends on the left against people on the right, or they presume people on the right, but the right certainly does it. Um, and just the, the nonsensical hate. We mentioned before about, about people wanting a re, uh, an excuse to hate, and their political ideology gives them a way to do it. And I see that manifested often when I write. And that uh, when, I, when I'm reading things, especially on social media, which is where, as you know, logical discourse goes to die. It, it, it dies a terrible death there because people aren't face to face. So I get upset. I, I get annoyed more than upset by a lot of the things I read on social media. And that spurs a lot of my writing, both under my real name and under various pseudonyms. Yeah, I think it was, um, I, I can't remember who it was, William F. Buckley or Charles Krauthammer or somebody uh, told, or maybe it was George Will. Anyway, somebody when when some somebody was some well-known pundit was giving advice on hey how are you able to write two to three columns a week and they said oh that's easy you just look for what pisses you off and you will be able to write multiple columns every week um but for you i'm going to throw something out there and i'm i'm thinking out loud i'm not sure how wedded to what i'm about to say i am um 
it doesn't seem like you in all your writing that you necessarily have recurring themes that you come back to. There are certain people who write frequently and are pundits at one level or another, and they kind of have their beat. They kind of have the things that are always going to set them off, always going to make them address something. They almost have... I don't want to say rehearse speeches, but they have a lot of bullet points that they they know they know the the catechism of what they need to say to repel whatever they whatever wrong thing they see. It doesn't seem like you do. You cast a pretty wide net, and I'm wondering if that's because you are relatively, for lack of a better word, dispassionate, and that you're kind of an equal opportunity engager. You'll engage with any number of ideas in any number of ways. I like to think I am. I mean, of course, I got my own biases like everybody else does. But there's so many things that I'm interested in. It's probably, if I was a kid now, they'd probably diagnose me with ADHD because there's so much stuff I'm interested in. And I have so many friends with so many interesting things to say. Someone will post something and I'm like, wow, I didn't know that or I wonder if it's true. And then suddenly I find myself researching and finding an art, writing an article about it. It's a lot of fun. So I do think there is one theme that's present in a lot of my writing, although not all of it, and that's, that's veterans' issues. We've talked at length about mm-hmm. that on, on Havoc and face-to-face. So I'm very interested in it. I'm very interested in civil-military relations. But I'm also interested in pop music. And I'm interested in sports. I'm interested in politics. And I'm interested in things that other people find interesting. I think another reason why I don't produce a, a steady beat is I'm not trying to get famous through this. And I'm not, I'm not making money off of this. So I don't have to have a consistent audience who always knows if you go to Havoc Journal and you read Charlie Faint's stuff or you go to his Facebook page, it's always going to be this. And I'm going to get that fix to support whatever position I'm in. Um, and another reason that, that my stuff's not more popular is because I'll, I'll take positions on both sides of the ideological divide. And you've seen this manifested on Havoc, Chris. We'll, we'll post something remotely conservative and we'll get trashed and called all manner of fascists, et cetera. We'll post something on the left, remotely left maybe, and something that I wrote. And all of a sudden we're you know liberal snowflakes or whatever. So what I found is trying to be middle of the road gets you run over by both sides. But that's who I am personally and that's how we try to keep Havoc. And that's probably one of the reasons why you see such a, a wide variety of stuff coming out of my writing, Chris. So I want to ask you about uh, about that variety. You you have degrees in so many different things. You've pursued so many different academic courses, but then obviously your military career has taken you down a very deliberate path. How much of that was planned? from the get-go, how much of that? Well, let me start with this. What's the end game? What are you trying to do? I'm, I'm trying to live my life the most interesting, exciting way I can while taking care of my family. That's that's what it's all about, Chris. So I had a very non-traditional career path once I got inside the Army. In fact, the only reason I went to college, Chris, was because my dad, who was a, a Special Forces officer, among many other things, told me that the only way I could be an officer like him was to go to go to college and do ROTC. Now, of course, I know now that's that's technically true because the operating words were like him, but I could have enlisted. I could have done all these other things. I, I didn't. I didn't like high school, Chris. I wasn't a particularly good student. I was definitely not a good athlete. I didn't have any girlfriends, et cetera, et cetera. So I wanted. I just wanted to get in the army as quick as I could. So I went to college because I thought that's what I had to do. I got to college. It took me five years to get done with a four-year degree, and I'd never wanted to go back to school again. But then after being in the Army for a little while and grinding it out in the infantry, I was a platoon leader in, in the 101st for, for two years, actually. Uh, I came to realize education is kind of important, so I started pursuing it on my own. I, I was trying to get 
was working on some online degrees bef- before they became really big. In fact, I, I was I was taking some classes from University of Phoenix for a while, as and I, and that got that got me on a roll. That took me uh, now. I'm hopefully wrapping up my doctorate in the next year or so. Um, Lilla says I'm a I'm a I'm a habitual student, and it's like an addiction. I can't stop. But I think I'm about ready to be done because I want to start writing books. I want to take all this knowledge of my almost 50 years and start putting it out maybe to help somebody. Yeah, tell me about that. I mean, so obviously when you're talking about all the academic things you've done, so would this be just a continuation of your doctorate and you're writing something academic, you're writing something for people that already know the subject matter, or is it something where you're trying to bridge a divide or or speak to the layman about something? So it's a combination, of course, as you might expect. It's all kind of things. It's all over the map. So my doctorate I'm working on right now involves veteran entrepreneurship and helping veterans find a second mission through entrepreneurship after they get out of service. So I'm hopefully going to turn some of that into a book. It's a very common thing. You take your dissertation, put it into a book. But I also have a kind of a choose-your-own-adventure leadership book that was loosely based on some of the events in my life that I, I ran on a a website called uh, shadowspirit.com. It's kind of choose your own adventure and the audience gave me ideas and I formed this thing. So I got an idea for that, that I might want to produce. And my friend, Mike, that I mentioned before, we've been friends since eighth grade. We used to play a lot of Dungeons and Dragons together. And one thing that we promised ourselves that we would do is we'd write a fantasy series together. So those are kind of the big ones. And eventually maybe a memoir about my life. So my grandchildren and great-grandchildren can look back and say, oh, my my grandfather, great grandfather, great grandmother, they did some things that were pretty cool. Yeah, that makes sense. I want to go back to to what you said before because I didn't want to I don't want to let the moment pass too much. I I've obviously I've spoken to your dad. You're nice enough to bring him on the weekly havoc and, and we got to talk to him there. But talk to me about that relationship that you had with him. Obviously, every time I've ever asked you about your military choices, your military career, why you got in. Um, it seems like it comes right back to your dad. Like he was incredibly influential in a way that you almost, it seems like this was exactly what you wanted to do. You wanted to go in the military, you were tunnel visioned on it. And, um, you know, that, that just seems like that was incredibly, uh, pivotal relationship that, that, and, and you haven't had any regrets, which is even more remarkable. (laughs) <laughs> well, it hasn't always been easy, but yeah, I'm grateful I've been in. This is going on 27 years now. My dad did 26. So yeah, if my, I always looked up to my dad, still do. If I, uh, I, w- I would have done something else. Dad actually got, he was, he went to school on a basketball scholarship. And when I was younger, I remember finding a document that an NBA team had asked him to come do tryouts for them. Doesn't mean they were going to hire him, but he got invited to do tryouts. I don't remember which team, it might've been the Knicks. I don't know. Um, so he could have gone, he could have played basketball. Uh, he, he, at his school, he held the record for most points, most rebounds and most games fouled out of. Cause dad is a dirty basketball player. Don't play basketball with my dad. He'll foul the crap out of you, but he was good. He was real good. So if he would have played basketball, I would have tried to do that. If he would have gone into carpentry, I would have tried to do that. Huh. But he was a soldier. So that's, that's what I went into. And that's why we joined up. But yeah, he was cool. He was, he was special forces. Uh, all the people that we knew were in the special forces community he commanded, a battalion at Fort Bragg. He was a G2 for the 82nd. He commanded an organization that most people refer to now as Task Force Orange. And then he retired as the J2 for SOCOM. So he had a, he had a heck of a career. 
And it's interesting because even now I run into people who knew him or worked for him or, or, or heard about him. So it's been pretty cool. Tell me about tell me about his parenting style. I mean, as a parent myself, I mean, I think that's there. Probably anybody listening that's trying to raise kids would go, boy, to have a child raised who just goes, I want to do whatever you do. I mean, if you're a soldier, okay, then I'm going to go in the military. But if you're a carpenter, I'm going to go do that. What was so powerful about that connection? What made you so loyal to whatever career path he went on? That's a great question. And so. With my dad's career and what he was doing, he was gone a lot. So I was mostly raised by my mom. And it worked out fine. worked out well. Dad did the work outside the home, and mom did most of the work inside the home. Although she also had jobs when we were growing up as well. So in that sense, I'm much more a mama's boy. Like the, the way I am right now, is, is my, that's my mom's influence. Uh, all this stuff that I'm doing, all the stuff that I've done is outside of wanting to be in the Army was her influence. And I think that worked pretty well. And that a lot that's what happened in our family as well. Lilla had to do most of the raising, even though she was in the Army for 10 years as well, because I was always getting sent all over the world to do different things. So I don't know that it was ever a conscious or deliberate thing. I, I don't think, you know, my dad listens to the podcast. It's probably the first time he's heard about this. But I never went to dad and said, I don't think, and said, hey, I want to do whatever you do. It was just one of those things of looking around, like, that's really cool. You get to blow things up. You get this long tab and this green hat and all this other stuff. And everyone my dad hung out with were super cool. They pay you pretty well. And I took a lot of pride in, in seeing people in uniform and even the Boy Scouts wearing a uniform. And I think that's, that's how it worked out. So, yeah, dad was gone a lot when I was young. When I went off to college, I, the first Gulf War broke out and he went to that. Before that, he went to, to Panama. And then uh, when he was in JSOC in particular, he had to go all over the world doing sorting things out. So he was gone a lot. Mom stepped up and filled it. My sister and I were extremely close. And that family connection has been really good for us, Chris. What Have you ever talked to your dad about uh, the stuff he did? Has that ever come up? Have you ever wanted to talk to him? How, how did that work out? Yeah, so it's really interesting. So dad's old school soft where you just did the job and you don't talk about it to anybody, not right. even your, your very nosy and very interested teenage kid. So I remember um, he, he was a commander of a particular unit um, that we went to his chain, chain of command, change of command, and we drove past a place that I thought that he was in charge of. And we went to a completely different location that was unmarked. Um, and I started putting it together then that this was kind of, this was unusual, right? This was, this is not what I expected. And then I, when I was a young captain in Korea, somebody, uh, a major encountered me and he's like, Hey, I work for your dad at the unit, blah, blah, blah. And he starts talking to me like, I know anything about it. Anything. He's like, yeah, you know, I'm sure your dad told you about X, Y, Z. He's like, no, I had no idea what you're talking about. And he thought I was being coy and got annoyed. Well, I was like, dude, I got nothing. I have no idea what you're talking about. Wow. Dad, when dad comes home, he talks about fishing and basketball and how was school today. But over time, um, you know, it's a, it's a 25 year uh, declassification thing for, for most of the stuff that, that happens in the military. So now he can talk about it and sometimes he does, but he's, he's old school like that, Chris. He's, he believes in non-disclosure agreements. He believes in sure. just doing your job and that the, the mission is what's special, not the individual. Did you make a point though of, of, ever seeking him out and saying, Hey, you know, it's not something now I've kind of been in that world. I've walked in your shoes a little bit. Uh, let's have that conversation. I'm, I think I'm ready to hear about it. 
Yeah, it made it a lot easier after I got in the community because I, I didn't have to ask as much because I kind of got it. Mm-hmm. And then I'm read right onto those programs, so I legitimately have the clearance for it. And I think one of the things that helped was when Relentless Strike came out, the book about JSOC. And I, I gave dad a copy and I went down and we talked to him about it. And he was like, yeah, this is true. This is true. I, I didn't know this. Huh. This is this is BS. So that was fun also. And Emily interviewed him when she was little. This must have been six or seven years ago. Uh, interviewed him and, and he'll talk to her uh, because I guess, I guess, you know, nine-year-olds can maintain OPSEC or something, I guess. I don't know. Um, so he, uh, she, she interviewed him and we turned that into an article for Havoc Journal which was fascinating and talked about how he joined special forces by simply not showing up to the unit he was supposed to go to and just signing in the fifth group, which I am pretty sure that you can't do that anymore, but it's a very special forces story. Yeah, no, that was, that was a great story. I remember reading that. Um, that's interesting. That's really interesting. Uh, so talk to me then about when you, I, mean, I think what interested me most about your dad was that you were like, Hey, if he had been a carpenter though, I would have gone into that path. Obviously that would have been a different world. That would have been a different community that you'd have had different interactions with his coworkers and all that, but that still would have been appealing to you just because he was appealing to you. Yeah. Yeah. Dad was a good role model. Mom was a good role model that mom worked so hard for us, made a lot of sacrifices for the family made a lot of sacrifices for my dad's career, still does, still does uh, drop anything to come help us out. So yeah, if whatever, whatever my dad would have done, I would have done and been happy with it. I'm just really glad he chose the military because I don't think I could be, I could f- feel as fulfilled doing anything else. And that's why I'm still in it after so long. Charlie, what's, um, what's your biggest regret in the military? So I have lots of them. I know a lot of people say that they, they don't have any regrets, but I do. I've been in a long time. And I, if I had it to do over again, I would have, I would have gone to ranger school and, and kept doing that until I got it done. I didn't think it was that important when I was younger, but looking back, I, I, think it, I think it is. But the main thing I regret is not working harder for my soldiers and not being kinder when I was younger. So I could have, like... The person I am right now, I was not this, certainly before September 11, 2001. I was a lot more high-strung. I th- took a lot of things more personally. And I, I wish I would have done better by my troops and for my troops than I did. So I think those are the biggest regrets. But life worked out really well. I'm in a good spot right now. I love the job I'm doing now. I love the position I'm in. My family's healthy. Everybody's happy. My mom and dad are still alive and still together. My sister and I are still close. So other other than those two little things, I don't have any other regrets. So when your career wraps up in the dangerously near future, one year, two years, whatever, um, do you feel like you've ticked all the boxes you need to tick? Is there any part of you that's like, eh, I would have liked to have pushed out one more time to this AO or to, you know, or worked with this unit or any, is there anything like that? Or are you like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm good. I'm solid. Chris, I'm good. I used to think that until very recently. I, you know, I, seven times Iraq and Afghanistan, a little bit of time in Philippines, in in Egypt, um, got sent on, on shorter trips all around the world, two years in Korea. So I got to see a lot. I, I feel like I did a lot. But I thought, you know, I, I haven't been to Syria, so maybe I could I could call my friends in the task force. I could probably like legitimately get one more gig in. But seeing how things ended in Afghanistan and Iraq. 
why, why would I do that? Why would I risk it? I mean, I, I've always believed that nothing's ever going to happen to me and nothing has. And being an intel officer in soft units, it's, it's a pretty safe job than the jobs that I had. But why take the risk? You could crash. You could get hit by a random rocket. You could contract some weird disease. And, and for what? So I think I'm good. And when the Army tells me I can't do this anymore, then, then I won't. I'll do it until the day they tell me to, to, to pack it up. And then I've got lots of good options on the backside. I want to continue to give back to the veteran community. I want to continue to be a protective member of society. But when they tell me to go, Chris, I'll be ready. Uh, and it'll be fine. When was your last deployment, Charlie? 2007? No, dude, 2010. It's been, it's been a minute. It's okay. been 11 years. Okay. So do you feel like you've had essentially two careers in the Army? Because the, the Army you were in up until 2010 was radically different from the one you've been in since, really, right? Absolutely. So, um, 2010, after I left JSOC, I went straight into the schoolhouse. So I went up to the, what's now known as National Intelligence University, did a year there. Then I went to Yale for two years and then I taught at West Point for five years after that. So the the academia, of course, as anyone would, would suspect way different from go, 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 gone every six months all the time, high op tempo, high stress, people getting killed right and left to the schoolhouse. And it was jarring the first year I was there because I didn't have every bit of information on my, at my fingertips. I didn't know what was going on. I, I found out about the bin Laden raid because somebody mm-hmm. told me about it. I, you know, I had nothing to do with it. And so that was hard to get used to. How did that um, feel just while we're talking about the bin Laden I was, raid? I was, was there I was any happy. part of you? Was there any part of you that was like, God, I, I, maybe I, could have been part of that and been in the inner circle. Oh, for that, of course, or? of course. Yeah, I mean, yeah, how much regret was there? I was like, ah, come <laughs> on, man. Why can't you do this two years ago? Damn it. <laughs> well, what was what was funny? I, I got a tip off from a friend who, who said, you know, um, uh, uh, it was uh, Geronimo, Geronimo, Geronimo. We got him. Um, and then in the news uh, that night or the next day or whatever, I was watching the news with with Lilla. And it talked about how they got Bin Laden. They captured a bunch of digital equipment. I think you and I had this conversation. I literally looked at Lilla and said, half of that is porn. 100%. Half of that digital media is porn. And it was two-thirds. I was wrong. It was substantially more. Because that's what we always capture with somebody. If you got a phone, if you got a hard drive or whatever, um, it's going to be mostly pornography. So that was what I was thinking when we got Bin Laden. Glad it's done, finally. Maybe now there'll be a shift in the strategy that for the good. And, you know, to this day, we still don't know what titles uh, Bin Laden had on his porn library. Which is a deep and abiding loss to our national collective <laughs> historical record. Because we, yeah, cause who do, whose stuff do we know? Do we find out something from Kim Jong-il? Or maybe it was Kim Jong-un. Maybe, didn't we, find, wasn't there some leakage or something where we found out a bunch of titles of, of the porn he was watching and we found out which porn stars he liked and it, wasn't that a thing? I'm not just making oh this up, right? I, I don't know. I, I don't know about that specifically, but it sounds likely and it sounds terrifying. So maybe the world is better off not knowing these things. I don't know. I think it's an exploitable opportunity. I think knowing exactly <laughs> what their tastes are, who knows how we could spin that to our advantage. Um, so with, uh, so you, I, I'm, I guess I'm sort of curious and, and this is, let me let me take a stab at uh, making myself feel better about getting out before my twenty years. I felt w- w- I, there were basically four factors in when I got out, and this isn't about me, so I'm not going to talk about them right now. But one of the factors was um, 
hey, anything I do at this point on isn't going to be as fun as what I've been doing. Um, did you cross that Rubicon as well when you started to go into academia? And I guess because the military was paying you still to go to college, there you didn't you never thought about, hey, let me call it a career because really what I'm doing now is totally separate. You were still tied in. You're teaching at West Point. You're you know, you're in academia, but you're the army's very much shepherding you through that process. So there's no point leaving the military just then. But did it feel, um, I yeah, I mean, did, was there a certain point where you're kind of like, yeah, this this has almost this has so little to do with the military that I knew up until now. So two points on that. Those are both fantastic questions that involve, unfortunately, a little bit of a lengthy answer. So I did try to get out twice. I had a terrible experience in my first duty station uh, after the the chain of command changed out. Terrible experience. Tried to quit but couldn't because I had an active duty service obligation that that I I couldn't get out. And then I went to Korea right after that for two years there. Had a great experience as a company commander, but after I came out of command, had a terrible experience there too, back to back. So I tried to get out again then, but we got stop loss because of the war. So it hasn't always been sunshine and roses, but I, th- I personally believe that things tend to work out the way they're supposed to. So I'm still in after 27 years, but Chris, I would have gotten out after four or five if I could have, but for those two fortuitous events. Um, and then, you know, we talked about this before, my last duty station, I didn't have a good experience there either, but now I'm back at West Point. I love it. My, my boss is a genius. Uh, the mission is super important. And I love working with cadets, so I'm happy here. But to follow up what you were uh, saying about the, the question about, did I basically, did I miss it? And I can think of a specific event that, that encapsulates exactly what you're thinking about. So when I was stationed here at West Point, the first time General Flynn retired down at the DIA, he was the director of the DIA and he retired. And I got invited to go Um he was the J2 of JSOC when I was there. We didn't work closely together, but I, I knew who he was. And when I was in National Intelligence University, he reviewed this paper I wrote about the uh, F3EAD targeting process, and which was super to have a three-star general, just like the director of DIA, giving you input on an article. Small Wars Journal published that. And then when he, uh, when General McChrystal was, was, he still is, teaching his leadership course up at Yale, uh, General Flynn was one of his guests. So I had a couple of interactions with him, went down there to, for his, his, um, his retirement. And I remember two things about that, Chris. I remember how happy General Flynn looked. Like just beaming. Uh, I was disappointed. I didn't think I, I wanted him to stick around for a little while. So I was sad he was retiring, but he looked so happy there. And then when I was looking around, it was like a who's who of the special operations community. And I just, I recognized him because I'd, I'd seen him overseas or worked with him in the past. And I was like, oh man, look at, there, there's this person, there's that person, all oh, these great people. I'm like, man, I need to get back down there because I'm, you know, what am I doing coming out of the fight? right now when, when in 2011 why am i coming out of the fight the wars I, we didn't know at the time we got two more years to go we're halfway done yeah. um, but i thought about it on the on the drive home it was in dc so driving back to west point it'll never be like it was before being being in fifth group 160th and jsoc between 2003 and, and 2010 it's not gonna be like that again it's not the same mission it's not the same people and f- to some degree i guess that's good but the wild west days that we had when we were doing so much and and getting things so much done, it won't be like that anymore. So I'm happy to be where I am right now, helping the next generation prepare to not make the same mistakes we made over the last 20 years. 
how comfortable are you talking about what the the incidents that almost led you to separate? I don't want to put you on the spot, but no, no, it's fine. It's it's uh, it's easy enough to. Do. It's always about the people, Chris. It's always about the people. So you and I have worked in some pretty austere conditions. We've had some crappy jobs. We've been in some units that aren't prestigious. But as long as you have good leadership and, and good people around you, that makes it bearable. So my um, in the hundred first, I had a, a uh, had two very poor leaders, um, and I. I mentioned before that I would uh, I had a bad temper when I was younger, and I frequently fought other people's battles. So I mm. was the battalion S one for for this organization um, as an infantry lieutenant, but I didn't have my ranger tab. So I was very focused on on going to ranger school, but they needed me to do battalion S one stuff because I was pretty smart and, and organized. They needed me to do S one stuff to get. Th- get to X point through the, through a, a big inspection. So I did that after I went going back to ranger school. And then when I got done with that, they, they balked at sending me back to school. So I had a big fight with them about it. Ended up getting a very bad OER and uh, they tried to kick me out of the army over it. Long, long story, probably wow. subject for a different discussion. Got to um, Korea, had a very weak battalion commander and uh, battalion XO who I thought was, was crazy um, and went through a lot of issues with them as well. And then my last duty station just it just it was a very very poor it was a toxic environment classic toxic environment and what was disappointing to me is nobody really wanted to see seem to do anything about it except for me I filed IG complaints twenty two pages long on the um, wow didn't seem to have much of an effect but I did it and uh, but like I said I'm happy now I'm back here those three experiences three bad experiences over the course of twenty seven years I, I guess that's that's okay. How did you rebound? I think for civilians that might be listening, they might not appreciate the the impact of a negative OER or NCOER. How did you rebound from that? Did that ever come up, especially when you went to JSOC and had to get interviewed? Did people ask questions about it? Like, what did you have to do to mitigate that? Yeah, so I've, I filed a formal complaint and I did a formal appeal. And back in, back in the day, I don't know if it's still like this, your lieutenant OERs were masked, good or bad, at a certain point in the career. So I had this, huh. this, I had a couple of good OERs, had this bad one, and then I had one or two good ones after that. But those are all, those are all masked, you know, four years worth of evals. And then if you look at the eval and you look at the, the rebuttal to it, it's pretty conspicuous. Like it's, it's clearly like any seasoned leader looking at this eval would, would be like, get this shit out of here. I'm not, you know, this is ridiculous. Um, and the other thing too is, Chris, I never really worried about it. After that, was a very eye-opening experience, and I had it early in my career, and I'm grateful for that, because the only reason I got to leave Fort Campbell when I did was because I threatened to get my my father involved. My my dad was still in at the time. I actually no, he just retired. He just retired, but he was looking. He had worked for the guy who was currently the chief of staff of the army or chairman of the Joint Chiefs. I don't remember which one it was. And I was like, look. If this is the way you guys are going to do it, I'm going to ask my dad to get get this general involved, and we'll ask him to come down here and, and sort this out. And then they let me leave. But it was very interesting and eye opening the the politics that goes on. And even though I was in the right, most of the, with the exception of, of three individuals in the entire battalion worth of officers, no one no one stuck up for me. It was very conspicuous wow. what the right and wrong was. But when it came down to it, everyone was worried about their own careers, and that still goes on now. And I understand it. But for me, it was very liberating because it's like, okay, I, I had this experience, but now I'm not going to worry about my career anymore because I know it's not going to go anywhere. And I'm going to do what interests me when I think I'm good at. And once I broke into to special operations, the sky was the limit. I really enjoyed that. It was a good fit for my, 
my talents and my mindset and my interpersonal skills. So that was great. And then working at West Point, of course, that's been awesome as well. So it, it was rough, but now, now it's done. Did you find that there was more moral courage? And I want to emphasize that moral courage when you went into soft, into the special operations world, or was it six of one half dozen of the other? It just depends on the individual organization. That's a great question. I never thought about it before. I guess if I had to pick on the spot, I'd say, yeah, say a little more moral courage, but also because there's a screening process, a lot of the the issues that you would have with the, the units, the leaders that I had, would have had problems with. Now that I think about them, all of them, um, that would have got screened out. Like these other people never would have made it in soft. Actually, with one exception, one one of the guys uh, actually was in a couple of different soft units, but got got booted out. Um, but the screening process, especially for the upper tier units, it, with the the, they'll check on, uh, they'll call your peers, they'll call your former bosses. You have to do a psyche eval, things like that, and the, and they they do it for fit. So I think that's probably one of the reasons they get along. And also, I think one of the reasons I enjoy being in soft so much and was good at it was I understood my role. I'm an intel guy. I'm not a shooter. I'm not an operator. Whatever. I'm not a I'm not a cool guy. Sure. I don't want to be a cool guy. I want to do intel stuff. So I think between the two things, there is is why it worked out for me. Why I was able to get along with everybody. What is it that drove you towards intelligence? Is it because your dad had that background or why, why did you make that career shift? Yeah. So dad was an Intel officer. Um, he was back in the old days of SF. You probably know this, Chris, they, they, SF wasn't his own branch. So he was a tabbed MI guy, um, in there, but he did Intel. That sounded really cool to me. And I like being on the inside and knowing about it. One of my, one of my most, um, profound professional disappointments was not being told where they kept the UFOs or where Jimmy Hoffa's body is buried when I became Intel officer. Cause I thought you would know everything, you know, once you did that, but I liked it and I found out I was good at it. And the culture inside military intelligence, I think is a better fit for me than the culture of infantry or some of the other, or, or some of the other branches out there. How important in your opinion is conformity in the military? And, and obviously that has a, a positive connotation and a negative connotation, but how important is that overall? So I think I, I would use unity more than conformity because um, one of the principles of mission command is disciplined initiative. So we don't need conformity per se. We don't need you to conform with everything, but we do need you to be working towards a unified effort. So you get broad left and right limits. You understand the commander's in state go. So I think unity is a, a much uh, a better term that I would use, Chris, but I think it's essential. If you don't have unity based on trust and kind of a, a coherent understanding of, of what we're all here doing here and what we're for, you're not going to have an effective unit. And I think we've all seen units like that where everyone's kind of on their own program and everything just kind of falls apart. Yeah. And then talk to me about uh, about specifically that officer experience. Um, I'm always interested in officers that enjoy intelligence work because I, um, in, in my experience, I didn't see a lot of officers do very interesting things until they got honestly to, uh, Oh four or above level where, and especially when they could go into a special access program. And then they really started to like all the institutional knowledge they had started to pay off and they started to do a lot more operational cool things. 
that was just what I saw, though. So I'm always interested in why somebody's getting a kick out of being an MI officer, especially early on. Well, I, I think that's very accurate, Chris. So what I encourage the cadets here to do, they they many of them are very interested in intel or or one of the other support roles like that and i tell them that the best thing they could do is do the branch detail program which is what i did and what i found out later my dad actually did this too although i i didn't know until i'd been in the army for a long time so what i did was i commissioned as an my officer but i was an infantry officer for four years in order to detail and the reason why this is interesting is because you get to do kind of the cool stuff at the company grade i.e captain and below in the combat arms, which is all the the hooking and jabbing and stuff like that. And the early years of Intel, for many people, it's, it's very boring. You're handing out maps, you're do, you're getting yelled at by the S2, etc. But about the time you make captain in Intel is when the world starts opening it up. Right. And certainly when you make major. Like in JSOC, I don't think we had any Army Intel majors in, in my unit, uh, captains in the unit. Everybody was a major above. Sure. So... Once once life starts getting sucky in infantry, like when you make major and you got to be an S3 to XO, you make the jump over to MI, and that's when the world starts opening up. So I think that's that's highly accurate. Young MI officers are often pretty grumpy, and then when they make captain or major, everyone gets excited. Yeah, no, that's really smart. Yeah, I didn't fully appreciate how you navigated that, but yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That I could absolutely see that. I want to shift to something that you kind of referenced before and it's something that I think is a is is a concern. I've I've heard from different people before when this subject has come up what a turnoff this is in furthering their military careers and that is your contract. That sense that you are laboring under a contract and if you god forbid have a toxic work environment early on and you you manage to tiptoe through that minefield and make it out on the other end, you're going great. Now I still got four more years left on this contract. Son of a bitch. You know, um, did the, did the contract itself or just being under contract ever weigh on you? Um, I, I'm sure it did obviously when you were thinking of getting out, but, um, maybe talk about that. And if it ever came up again, where you were like, okay, I'm just watching the clock tick until I can get out, out from under this. So I, again, I tend to believe that people get what they deserve and everything works out in the end. So been several things in my life. Some of the best things that happened in my life happened because I didn't get what I thought I wanted at the time. So even at that young age, when I couldn't get out in a fit of peak, uh, because I was mad at the army, mad at the unit, I think it was good to have that cooling off period. Um, and I couldn't see it largely at the time. You know, looking back now, I'm sure God had a plan for me. It's not for me to, to say what it is or what it isn't, just kind of to, to deal with it. So I think having a contract is good in a lot of ways. You get a you get a number on the wall, say, hey, it's just like when we're deployed. At this day, you know you're free. And also it keeps you in and keeps you going through through the BS. Another thing I, t- I tell the cadets here is good or bad, your first duty station is in the Army. It's your first duty station. I had a miserable time in my first duty station. I had a miserable time in my second duty station. But after that, it got pretty good. And if I would have bailed after that first experience, I wouldn't be where I am right now. So having that that contract to serve it out, I think uh, I think it's a good thing. Especially now, Chris, with that, that new GI Bill, you serve an entire contract. You got that GI Bill. That's one of the most generous things the nation ever did for us. I think that's pretty incredible. So any of you listening, if you're having a bad time out there in the Army right now, dude, it's worth it to stick it out for your first enlistment and, and get fully qualified for the GI Bill. Yeah, I, I want to use that to segue into something that you and I have talked about before, but I feel like 
now we finally got the one-on-one long-form forum to to properly duke this out. So let let's talk about the incentives and the upside to being in the military, especially um, not just for the individual, but for the country. When we're you and I have talked, uh, and you've you've spoken eloquently in the past about Stan McChrystal's um, you know annual service plan, uh, and I'm forgetting the exact nomenclature that he uses, but that, that, uh, his idea of having everyone serve a year in some sort of national service capability. And I'll link to it in the show notes for those that want to read more about it. Um, those kind of things that make military service. Well, I don't know if they make them appealing, they make them mandatory. Um, and then hopefully put that, that contract on somebody and make them weather the storm in a way that maybe they'll appreciate the military a bit more on the other side. Um, I have, as I, as we talked about the other week on, I think the weekly havoc, I'm, I'm now against that policy, but talk to me a little bit about that and how you see that fitting in to encouraging people uh, into the military service or into some degree of patriotism where there might not otherwise be one. Absolutely. So what, you, what you're mentioning there is the Franklin Project. It's one of the initiatives that General McChrystal's involved in. And what we, I think we need to do, Chris, at some point is, is get Jay Mann going on the show. So Jay was my classmate at Yale, great guy, helped me pass uh, statistics, I think it was, that he held, or econ. At any rate, he worked that on uh, under General McChrystal's direction for, I think, a, a year, several years on that. And basically, the premise is to encourage, not require, young Americans to serve a year in some capacity, serve the nation in, in some capacity in a year. And a lot of vets will say, well, I think everyone should join the, the military for, I, I think that's ridiculous. Um, first of all, I think it's something on the order of 60% of Americans are, are too fat, too dumb, or too criminal to join in the first place, too drug addicted. And moreover, it is so expensive, Chris. So the, the biggest part of our budget is is personnel benefits. Yep. And those benefits continue, and they're super expensive. So we, we don't need that. We need, we need troops who want to be there, et cetera, et cetera. So I don't think everyone should be in the military, but one of the benefits of being in an organization like the military is it's one of the few genuine melting pots we have left in the country. Too many people across the country right now are self-segregating into these echo chambers, and they never met meet anyone ideologically different from them. Whereas in the military, you got folks from all over the country and all over the world thrown together, and they become tight. And they go back to their 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 hometowns, and they're like, "Hey, person in, in this in X group isn't that bad because I know three of them, and we're we served in Afghanistan together, or we served stateside together in, in disaster relief, etc." So I see, see that as a benefit to this this service year alliance or the Franklin Project, where you get these young people from across the nation and you put them together building a road, or clearing a forest, or or working a, a soup kitchen. And you make them work together because that shared struggle is going to make them unite in a way that nothing else can. So that's why I think it's a good idea, Chris, some type of national service to give back to the country instead of taking, which is what most Americans do now. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, I'll reiterate the position that I've said before, and, and, and we can hash this through. My, my concern, I think that's all well-intentioned, and I think that all makes sense. Um, from a top-down, let's say technocratic perspective, that if you have to, you know, centrally plan a way to encourage people to become patriotic, give back to the country, and all that, that's a perfectly feasible way of going about doing it. I see 
huge potential pitfalls with that. I, I think I think it's very hard, just like you can't legislate morality, I'm not sure you can legislate patriotism or love of country or selflessness. Um, I, to me, I think, and this is the, the, the problem is when I talk about alternatives to it, the alternatives are, I think the beauty of them is their lack of central planning. I can't simply quote one program and say, well, this is what should happen instead, because I think that's, that's literally the problem that there is no one solution. There is no one, uh, single effort that it could deliver this. I think it's something culturally that has to occur. And I can't remember if I referenced this before, but I'll give some examples. I remember in the Bush years when Iraq and Afghanistan were first kicking off, the number of shows of influential shows at the time, Family Guys, Simpsons, um, all the cartoon ones. And then I I think some other ones uh, were, uh, they would do, episodes, well-received episodes about military service, rehashing tropes that, hey, these are losers that can't do anything else in life. John Kerry famously in 2004 when he was running for president said, well, you guys better go to college. Otherwise, you're going to end up in Iraq. You know, um, this was very common. And even now, although veterans get a lot more respect now, almost uniformly across the American public, you know, to most of the public, their veterans are still essentially in the same category as the Vietnam vets. They assume everyone's fighting PTSD and has seen horrors and it's an un- everything's an unjust war. There's no nuance about that. And your government's lying to you. Your government's pimping you out to go die in the killing fields of not Cambodia, but Iraq or what have you. And I think the pop culture influence on people's perception of the military has been more damaging than anything else. And all the lone survivors... And uh, uh, was the Chris Kyle one, you know, all American snipers and all this, those all, I, it doesn't seem like they have the same degree of amplitude as the negative uh, implications. And the one example that I remember most was when I walked into the recruiter's office in Burbank, California to enlist and I was going up the escalator. It was at the recruiter's office was on the second level of the mall. And I was, as I was going up the escalator, I was looking at the, you know, recruiter stuff, all the signs and the cutouts and, you know, all the rah-rah stuff they post there. But I had been there a couple of times and I was actually coming in to be taken down to maps, if I remember right, or something. Anyway, it was a, it was a major moment of my actually going in to, to sign up. And I remember there were two guys about my age, uh, 20-somethings, if I had to guess, that were coming down the escalator on the other side. And they saw me looking at the window. And they were like, don't do it, bro. Don't do it. <laughs> and and I remember going, you fucking cunts. And I was just like, I was so disgusted. And when I got to basic, um, you know, the our we were as at Fort Sill, Oklahoma. They had the starships where they had eight, um, you know, platoon bays or you know legs of this bay going around, and I, I think it was like eight or twelve uh, legs that were supposed to be filled with recruits, and there were only three filled. 
And I remember going at the time I thought I was too old to go in. I was like, I, I think I was 32 when I enlisted and I was like, um, I, I was like, I didn't, I didn't enlist before. I didn't think I'd had to. I thought people would be flooding the the recruiting office for years to come after nine eleven. Right. And as that was drying up, and as uh, you know, it just became clear and clear to me that this was a war that wasn't going to be over in sixty days. And um, all I was horrified that this is all we got. And I thought, you know, this is pop culture. This is a major movement of of people that have been raised and I'm I don't want to make too I want to paint with too broad a brush but I I think the children of the 60s are the ones that end up being the teachers in the schools and I think a lot of those lessons were the ones that when I was in high school and you may as well relate to this um that was what I kept hearing in high school was from all these kids that were children of the 60s they didn't serve in the military but they had a lot of strong feelings about war because they knew absolutely nothing about it but they had a lot of opinions about Nixon and they were happy to tell you about that and frame every American history lesson through that every English lesson through that so by the time 9/11 happened very quickly that honeymoon period was over and we were having a hard time recruiting because for several decades, we had been propagandized against the concept of war writ large. The idea that nothing is worth going to war for, that war itself is the plague to be avoided at all costs. And if you don't believe anything is worth fighting for, um, then for damn sure, you're not going to enlist. And what was really ironic to me, and I'm sorry, I'll just make this, this is the Charlie Faint episode in case anyone's wondering. It's not the me episode, but to frame, to tee this up for Charlie, I remember in 2004, walking by the GOP convention, I lived in New York City at the time, the GOP convention was in Madison Square Garden, and I was working a graveyard shift, and uh, I was walking past it to go down to my work assignment, and seeing for the first time, we now are used to this, we see this in Portland, Seattle, we've seen it with Occupy Wall Street, but at the time, it was the first time I had ever seen in our streets all these upper middle class or middle class, upper middle class white kids in the streets, thronging the streets, throwing stuff at the delegates to the GOP convention who are walking down 33rd Street towards Madison Square Garden, screaming about the Iraq war, screaming about the military, um, you're picking fights with people. And I was stunned. I couldn't believe that this was happening three years after 9-11, that we had lost that, the, the, our inspiration and, and, and the righteousness of a certain cause that quickly. And I say all that to say it's what makes me skeptical of a top-down solution, that when you have so many cultural factors that are preconditioning you to believe that war itself is the problem, um, that I think that has to be overcome. Otherwise, any top-down approach will become perverted, um, not sexually, obviously, but just perverted and, and, and diverted from its actual intended mission and it will become something else. It will become some sort of centralized, uh, mechanized routine that, that won't serve the purpose of actually preparing people to defend American ideals. That's always a danger, and that could certainly happen. We see that going on in our own country right now. But I think a lot of times, if you get young people together and force them to do something hard and make them think and act, I have a little more confidence in the future. You know, I work with young people all the time, not just 
with the West Point cadets who are, I do think are, are a different story, but also with the Yale undergrads and, and folks like uh, Seton Hall and other places, I, I have a little more confidence in them. I think if we, if we set the stage for it and we put some measures in place to keep it from becoming perverted, like you said, I think it'll, it'll work out well. And another thing that I think that some people will disagree with me on this, but one of the reasons I think that something like this would work is most attributes about a person, I believe, are, you can develop. For example, character is one of the things we, we talk about most here at West Point. It's one of the five pillars. Some people say that once you get here, you can't develop it anymore. The best you can get is conformity. I don't think that's true. I think just about anything can be developed. So I think you can develop a, a sense of patriotism. I think you can develop develop a sense of of valuing our constitution and our country, American exceptionalism. I think you can do that if it's done the right way. Let me throw this out there. I would say I would challenge you to say it depends who's doing it. I think that's the issue. I think what was it? I think it was the Reagan quote that all change occurs at the dinner table. Um, right. You know that if you it depends who it is that's doing it. I have less faith in a centralized bureaucracy to instill that than I do in individuals or trusted individuals, whether it's community leaders, church leaders, uh, special leaders in the military, uh, you know, that you bond with, that you have some sort of rapport with. Um, but writ large, I, I don't trust a government program to be able to instill that. Sure. Maybe we could power it down. Maybe a provision of it could be powered down to the locals. And you could you could see who, and I think if that's the case, and I think most of the people who are being interested in supporting something like that are going to be the kind of people we want teaching our young people values, uh, probably church groups, probably local government, things like that. And I'm not as familiar with the nuances of these types of projects, but I think those are legitimate concerns we can work on. But I think you can develop these young people, and I think you can help them. And I think that that if you have well-meaning people put together that they can sort this out. I remember being my first year at Yale, people were shocked that I was in the army and a literal quote was you're in the army and you got into Yale. Those things aren't mutually exclusive. This is a very common thing. And I also remember them being shocked that I was from Alabama. They'd say things like, you don't talk from Alabama. When you unpack that, it's like how many people from Alabama have you ever met? You're the first one. And of one, everyone from Alabama, as far as you're concerned, speaks exactly like me. What they meant, of course, is I don't sound like an ignorant redneck, uh, but that that's not what they, they wanted to say. So I, I think uh, that was eye-opening for me, those biases people had towards me. And it was simple ignorance. It wasn't malice. I was friends with all these people. They just didn't understand how someone who could be in the Army could also get into a school like that. And someone from Alabama could have friends that were black or gay or Pakistani or whatever, Jewish. They didn't understand it. So I thought that it was my job to educate them on that. And Chris, yeah. I think it's our job to educate the community on us. If people have a misperception about us, it's our fault. And this dysfunctional veteran thing doesn't help, brother. I could not agree more. Talk to me about that. The, I mean, obviously, we've talked, we've spent a good amount of our bandwidth in the past talking about civil divide stuff and why the civilian community doesn't necessarily under, understand the military community. But I like what you just said because I do agree with it. I think the military sucks at messaging itself. And I guess in some ways that comes down to recruiters or how, how do you sell the message of why you should join the military. I think, though, ultimately, and I'm, I'll throw this out here so you can agree or rebut as you see fit. I'm much harsher on the military, I think, than most with this because I do think 
it's my biggest gripe about the profession of soldiering. It's not a problem with soldiers. It's soldiers being exactly what they should be, which is people that follow orders. Unfortunately, I think that disables the best sort of self-defense that military members can muster in the wave of propaganda, which is the ability to message themselves correctly. Let me give some examples of what I mean. When, whether it was don't ask, don't tell, whether it's been uh, different uh, uh, changes uh, in, in, in conceptions to uh, how the military should fight or who the military is, the military members generally would just salute the flag and go, whatever you want because we obey civilian leadership. And that's a beautiful thing. However, it is incumbent on the military members to know that they do know more about these subjects than, than their, uh, well, I'm sorry, I forgot my best example. Let me back up. Um, I just read Mark Milley uh, had advised Biden about Afghanistan and said, no, 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 the Afghans are ready to they're ready to to toe the line and they can hold up and all this. And this was apparently a couple of weeks ago. And I just read this piece today where he had given a much more bullish outlook on Afghan on the ANA and Anasoc's ability to defend the country than we're seeing play out in real life, which as somebody who was there this time last year, anybody could have predicted this. This is so not a surprise in any way, shape or form. And, um, you know, I, I won't impugn the, the motives or intentions of, of Mark Milley. I'll just say that I do think the military sometimes gets an idea from the civilian leadership. Hey, this is the way we want to go. And so the military finds every reason in the world to get to yes for the civilian leadership and goes, okay, all right, then we'll find a way to, for you to get there and we'll salute the flag. And, um, and they, and, and that inability to correctly message what the truth is and be able to package it and go, hey, this is not the fight we need to be having, or let me redirect your focus. I, I think that advisory role that the Joint Chiefs have, sometimes just the Joint Chiefs are unprepared for it. And I'm going to, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm filibustering because I haven't thought this through enough to, to say this as succinctly as I want. I think there is sometimes a case, though, and Charlie, I'm going to pick on you just because you said something to me once that I thought was fascinating, where you said, you know, I never met a gay person, uh, I think a Jew or a Pakistani that wasn't, you know, wearing a, a headdress or something until I was at Yale and then so, suddenly started to mix with people. I think the military, especially military senior leadership, is incredibly knowledgeable about the battlefield and incredibly naive about the civilian dynamic that it takes to effectively give correct guidance to that military. And that's where I think the military messaging falls apart, is that we're not, the military and DOD writ large is not sophisticated in a verbal self-defense of its priorities and of its mission and of what it takes to look out for its troops. And I saw this, I, I did very, very, very little time at the Pentagon. And when I was there, it was in a very specific role. I claim to have no expertise when it comes to policymaking or anything else like that. But culturally, what I saw was that sharp divide that I had never seen before uh, between a very officer-heavy um, group and the disconnect with the enlisted in the field. And that it was a different culture. The politics were different. The mindset was different. The um, racial makeup was different. 
the degrees and the academic uh, uh, prestige was different. And as a result, there was a real disconnect in in relating, in even the military relating to its own troops, its own line troops, and much less conveying that, that message to the powers that be. Instead, there was a lot of, well, hey, this is the orders we got, and we're going to salute the flag and execute um, without finding educated and appropriate ways of pushing back, not defying orders, but advising correctly. And that, to me, is... When, so when I talk about the problems I have or I see with the military's messaging, that's what I see is is that disconnect there. Did any of that make sense or rebut as you see fit? Yeah, no need to rebut it. I, I think there's a lot of interesting things there to unpack. So I, I don't know the specific things you're talking about regard to General Milley. I never worked for General military, Milley directly. He, he is you know uh, up there in the, in the military hierarchy, of course. Uh, so... I don't know anything about that. I never operated that level. I'm glad I don't have to make those types of decisions. But at the level that you and I operate at, Chris, you being out, me soon to be out, I think that we as a veteran community, we do this to ourselves. So the worst messengers are the vets or or ourselves. So the Army, they they have the public affairs. They have all these high-powered companies coming up with slogans and things like that. But at the end of the day, most of America doesn't do that. They don't see the videos. They never talk to sure. a recruiter. They do talk sure. to us. So sure. I think that that we do it the worst. Uh, veterans, I remember a lot of my my officer peers say that they won't vote, and they, it's a it's a matter mm. of pride. They see that being apolitical. I think that's ridiculous. I think everyone in the military should vote. I think considered a, a responsibility. And I'm not bashing people who believe that because until very recent elections, I never voted either. But I will never not vote again in every election that I'm legally allowed to do so. I think that we need to exercise that right. I think we need to be more vocal advocates for ourselves. I think that many vets just take it because that's how we're conditioned in the military. I do think that the military in general, I'm talking probably just about everybody, is conditioned to say yes to everything. You never say no. You never turn down a mission. You always find a way to say yes. In fact, one of the readings I'm having my class do this semester is about that directly. And I'll see if I can find it and put it in the show notes so everyone else can read it. But when we got vets walking around with shirts that say dangerous veterans stay away or putting signs in the front yard that say be considered a fireworks, and that's the only interaction that we have with our peers because we think we're too good to hang out with them, then what are they supposed to think? And when they see it reinforced by Hollywood, when they see it reinforced by veterans themselves, when their one interaction they might have that year is was the vet wearing a T-shirt saying, don't bother me, then what are they supposed to think? So we need to change that culture and that dynamic ourselves. And I think that'll trickle up to, to do you what see, we can affect. Do you see a lot of that? Oh, yeah, I do. I do. The, uh, the, the fireworks thing, it drives me nuts because it's like, hey, it's the 4th of July, man. We're celebrating what you and I signed up to to protect our constitution and our way. Like, yeah. I don't like fireworks, but I'll put earplugs in that night if if I need it. I don't like it because it scares me. I like it because I'm trying to freaking sleep. So just let people be be people. Don't worry if if someone wants to have a barbecue yeah. on Memorial Day, let them do it. Let's, See, let's I've, re- I've read about that. I've never actually seen it. I've read you know people's takes on it and all that. I, it's one of those things I I have no sensitivity towards because I I never knew if that's just you know a one uh, you know somebody making a mountain out of a molehill or if that's really a movement 
that you see. You're more plugged into the vet community than I am with that. But if, if, so I'll take your word for it. If that's something you're seeing a lot of. Yeah, it's, it's, it's big too. There's a lot of money in it. Again, anything that makes, makes people different and makes them edgy, people are going to gravitate towards. So you, you hear very little about highly functional veterans. You, you rarely see good news stories about vets who, who do well out in there, but you'll see all the time, this guy was a vet, this, this blah, blah, blah. And I also see every time that a vet gets hemmed up for something, every time it's, it's clockwork, you're going to see them blame it on PTSD. The PTSD made him do it. The PTSD made him a child molester. PTSD made him rob a bank. PTSD made them fish without a license, whatever it is. So like you were saying earlier about mm. being harder on vets, that I am too. It's like, hey, you don't get special treatment for, for breaking the law just because you're a vet. You don't get a license to be a jerk your whole life just because you served in Iraq. So get it together. If you're a vet, be proud of who you are. I think vets should do that. They should wear wear regalia to, to, to let everybody know they're proud of it. At the same time, don't don't be a jerk. You can get a lot. You can get a uh, go a long way in life by just being a normal, kind person. Yeah, that's true. Uh, I mean, I can't argue with any of that. It's funny. Um, yeah, I, I was just thinking about the difference, the different takes you and I have on messaging. And I'll be honest, you you have been involved in the veteran community much longer and much deeper in, in more profound ways than than I have. Um, and so I, I trust your sensitivity and, and uh, about this. I'm thinking it's, I'm thinking about w- what I can relate to with individual veterans and how they message, how they present themselves. I do think that there is, I think it's hard for civilians to know how to treat veterans because veterans themselves aren't necessarily aware of how they should be treated, which is to say, not that exceptionally, but it's interesting. I, I, I'm somebody that really thought I, when I got out, I was just going to recede into the woodwork as far as my veteran status. Like I was like, I, you know, plenty of people have done way cooler and better and more profound things than me. I don't really need to own this. I, I'm just going to let that lie. That was something now in my, in my rear view mirror. And instead you know, I read these stories about Afghanistan and I told my wife today when she came over, she, she's like, what's going on with you? I was like, Oh, I was like, I guess I look different because I was just reading about Afghanistan and I'm kind of surprised, um, that I'm that emotionally stirred up with it in ways that let's say a Tucker Carlson report on illegals at the border, uh, is not going to get me. You know, that the typical rabble rousing BS that you see on nightly cable news isn't going to fire me up the way this stuff does, because obviously there's more skin in the game. There's more of a personal attachment. And it's weird because I would have thought, you know, I because to your point, vets, vets go, hey, look, I, I don't I'm, I'm going to accept that I don't need help and that I'm good. But then you but then there are those things that do pop up where you go son of a bitch, this, this feeling is not resi- is It's not settling in me. I'm still really fired up because of something personally. And, and then you start to go, well, shit, maybe, maybe I have something still going on. Um, the last weekly havoc we did 
which may be a giveaway to everybody about when we're recording this, um, in case it's a couple <laughs> weeks before it comes out. But the last weekly havoc we did was about you know veterans' health, and uh, Jeff Dardia on it said something about uh, that loss of identity when you get out, and uh, I didn't. And until he said that, I hadn't realized how much that had played a role with me. Um, I, I didn't even put. To, it wasn't the first time I'd heard that expression. Um, but it was probably the first time since I'd been out and the first time I'd ever related it to veterans health. And I was like, wow, yeah, that's actually a real thing. And I think it's very hard if if a veteran, and I'm taking myself in this example, if a veteran can't figure that out and necessarily figure out what the left and right limits of my emotions are related to my service and related to my identity and related to my mental well-being, I don't expect as someone that's never served to be that sensitive to it because that's that's incredibly nuanced. The amount of times people will tiptoe around me because of something they think I'm going to care about, which I don't, and then cross the line and do something which I actually do care about and does piss me off. And I'll give, I'll give an example just to put a little meat on this bone. Um, when I got off a deployment a couple of years ago and I went to a picnic with my wife and kid, and I'd been gone for pretty much the mo- most of the past 18 months, and uh, we went out to this park with uh, another family that my wife had gotten close to while I was gone. And the kid or the dad of the other family uh, walked over to my kid and picked him up and hugged him. And they were used to seeing each other, you know, every month. They just, you know, went over and was like, oh, hey, and picked, picked him up and, and hugged him. And I could have killed him. I, I, it just set me up. And, and I was like, and I never would have seen that coming. Um, but then people would come up to me and go, um, well, how, how are you, you know, being right. back and all that. And I'm like, oh, well, I'm fine. You know, but it, so it's, it's weird. It's uh, and and I think this is what makes it hard for veterans on an individual level level to know how to message or how to speak about their experience or, or just how to interact with people or how to talk about the veteran what it means to be a veteran because it, it is nuanced and everyone's mileage does vary. And it's, and it's just weird what sets you off and you usually aren't aware of what that's going to be. Yeah. And that's why what we're doing here in, in the weekly havoc and havoc journal and so many other organizations are doing is so important. Vets need to tell their stories. So not only for themselves, as you and I both talked about writing is very therapeutic, whether it's about your own experiences or just in general, but also because we need to share those stories so people understand a little bit better. Yeah. So I, I'm sure that that at least half the people that listen to this podcast are not going to be vets. And now they're going to understand a little bit better about how, how we think and how we act because we're making the effort to go do it. If more vets did that, even even informally, just, just t- talking to people, interacting, having a, a good time with them, and letting folks know what, what we can and can't do and not being jerks about it. Something else that really drives me nuts is the subset of veterans who go around saying, don't thank me for my service and just being jerks about it. What do you right. want them to say? Yeah. I mean, we can go yeah. back and it's coming. We could go back to what it was for Vietnam. I'm grateful right now. If someone says, thank you for your service, you say 100%. something nice back. Yeah. But yeah. also, Chris, you mentioned, uh, you mentioned, I have been in the veteran community a long time. I've been in the space for, for many years, courtesy of Marty Scovelin when he started Havoc Journal. But it doesn't mean that I'm right. So I think that both of us are right. The veteran community is, is so broad and so many experiences have happened. My experiences and your experiences are similar, but they're distinct. And there's millions and millions of us that had them. So I think 
both of us can be right about things like uh, about what vets should be doing or about what the army should be doing, et cetera. I think there's a broad tent in there uh, f- that can incorporate a lot of points of view, but I just personally, I want vets just to be, they were good servants. They were good soldiers. They were good Marines. They were good coasties. They were good airmen, whatever they were. You were good in the military. Now be a good citizen. People yeah. say they don't want to reintegrate. You came from civilian life. It's your job to go back to civilian life. If you live long enough, and I hope everybody does, one day the military won't be there for you. Go be a civilian. Be proud of your service, but get integrated, get on with your life, and be a highly functional veteran. And I, and I hope anyone listening to this, if they're a vet out there or they're in the military, thinking about the military, that they take that away. Be a highly functional veteran. Give back to your community because your mission doesn't end when your service does. You will have a second mission. Go out there and make sure you accomplish that one too. Secondmissionfoundation.org, everyone. <laughs> Which will be in the show notes, but nonetheless, but but no, and that's right. And that's why the second mission is so important because that's right. And it, and it is crucial. And it's crucial to recover that sense of, if there is any sense of lost identity, to say, well, wait, hold on a second. Wait, I'm still the person that can execute X, Y, and Z and find what that second mission is that you can still execute. Um yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more. So I'm I'm tempted again, second spoiler about when we're recording this, because we're about to do uh, our weekly havoc here in a little bit, and we're going to be talking about media. I noticed that I have a bunch of things that you brought up that I really want to jump on, but they're going to bleed into what we're going to talk about on the weekly havoc. But I'm going to steal that thunder a little bit here. And if I repeat myself later, you can roll your eyes and black out your screen and all that when we do the weekly havoc. Um, but I want to ask you about the, the veteran celebrity, um, which has become a thing and it's interesting to me. I, you know, I, I think we talked about, you know, how long it had been, you know, when you take, you know, when you're operational and you just are not on social media very much and, and lately getting back onto social has been sort of jarring for me uh, for many reasons. Um, but I feel like I'm suddenly back in the inner loop of what's going on in the veteran community because I'm seeing everyone's Instagram posts and the number of mostly former soft guys, but also a few others that have really become um, not just social media influencers, but really celebrities um, is noteworthy. Um, and there's, and it's this really, uh, you know, it's a real cadre of, of individuals that are out there, um, and they look like they're doing well financially and they're making money and they're uh, doing well. I guess let's start with, I'd love to know your take on them. Um, it, and obviously they're all different um, to some degree, but generally what do you think about veterans becoming a bit of a celebrity subculture? I'm all for it. I hope it happens to me one day. So I, when I look, when I consider the highly functional veteran community, I think a lot of the people, all the ones that I'm thinking about right now when you're saying that, they fall into that highly functional camp. As far as I'm concerned, guys like Adam Driver, Jocko Willink, Matt Best, those types of folks, they're setting a good example for our community. Now, sometimes, sometimes some of these vets are silly. Sometimes they're cutting up. There's things like that. But in, in the main, I think they're good for us and I think they're good for the nation. And I think their their service has given them entree 
to a platform that otherwise they would not have that is beneficial overall to the veteran community. And I'm sure if we look or if we think about it, we can come up with, well, actually, I've got a very good one that I think is a terrible example. I'm not going to say his name on the air. Uh, but there are there are bad vets out there. There are bad vet-owned companies out there. But I think in the main, these veteran celebrities are a good thing for us. I agree. Well, let me let me throw a couple things out there. I, I it's been my belief for a while now that I think the new aristocracy. I think you know there is an aristocracy in this country, and I do think it's celebrity. I don't think it's based on anything else. I think now your pull, your ability to so, to influence through social media, does set you apart, and that is a cast that we're seeing. And as a result, uh, if we're going to have those kind of, if we have social media influencers, uh, you know, influencing people, I'm not opposed to vets being in that. My first reaction though, to vets joining that, that league of individual is that veterans almost by our nature from the time you're a basic, you don't like the people that stick their heads up above the crowd. Um, which in some ways is why I think it's easier for, let's say a Tim Kennedy to stick his head up or Jocko Willink because unless you're willing to take the Pepsi challenge and do what they do and second guess their careers, which have been, you know, prodigious and, and incredibly difficult, uh, you know, most people are going to put their egos in check and take a backseat and go, well, okay, he can talk and all that. But I think in general, um, the veteran community looks a bit askance on people that dare to stick their heads up and actually be known by their name. Is that a, I mean, let's talk about why that is. And do you think that's a healthy response or at what point does it become unhealthy for the veteran community to act that way? Yeah, this is something I've, I've seen up close, not for me personally, but for friends of mine that I care about. I remember when Marty and I wrote Violence of Action. Actually, Marty wrote most of it. I just helped out about it. I remember when Violence of Action came out, the straight-up hate that Marty got from a good portion of the veteran community because he dared write a book about the Ranger Regiment. And what was interesting, what people didn't know is that we had the full blessing of the Department of Defense and the Ranger Regiment to do that. That was one of the, the things Marty and I talked about before we started this project, was that, yes, we're going to be that organization that goes through the public pre-publication process. We're going to get checked off by the Ranger Regiment, Special Security Office, et cetera. That wasn't even like an argument. That was just something we agreed to out of principle, him being a Ranger, me being an Intel guy. So went to, to come at Marty or anybody for something like that when we did the right thing, was very off-putting to me. And he just absorbed a lot of venom from the community. At the same time, though, he got so many more responses saying, thank you for doing this, uh, especially for the guys that contributed to the book or that, that knew them. Thank you for doing this. This is such a good thing. I can't count the number of times that someone has written to me and said, hey, that book with your name on it that Marty wrote um, inspired me to become a ranger or was one of the things I was thinking mm -hmm. about when I enlisted, stuff like that. So... I think some of it is is straight hate because nobody wants to see people succeed. It's a disgusting feature of humanity, and you see it in the veteran community. Mm -hmm. But also in the special operations community, like I was talking about earlier, we have the quiet professional attitude. Now, I think you can be a quiet professional and still tell stories in a legit way. There were no TTPs in there. There was nothing classified. Right. In fact, the, the Ranger Regiment made us change – the code name of an operation. The code name mm. was there to protect the information. They made us change that. Okay, right, fine. Right, so we'll right. do that. So I think the combination of the the culture 
which is changing now, of not talking out of school. And then also just straight jealousy and, and hate. That's the combination to do it. And you mentioned um, you mentioned Jocko Willink. I don't know him, but we did host him here at West Point last year for a, for a, he came and he did a talk um, for for one of the classes here. Amazing individual. I I knew a little bit about his background, et cetera, et cetera. But his messaging and his ability to relate to young young uh, military professionals was extraordinary. So in that example, I I think it's it's very helpful to the community. And this other guy, um, Sebastian Younger, who I, I know you've heard mm-hmm. of before, not a vet per se, but more combat experience than a lot of veterans have because of his, his, his work downrange sure. as, as, as a reporter. Another great example of a veteran adjacent individual that I think really helps out the veteran community. So to sum that up, Chris, I think in some, it is a good thing for us to have those people that we can aspire to be, to laugh at, to be, uh, motivated by, I think those veteran celebrities are good for us. So can I make a self-serving uh, uh, take on this? Please do. If, if you don't mind, because uh, I know you and I talked about this the other week, and I've done a couple of Instagram posts, I think, on this, on the um, 16th century Florentian poet and sculptor, Benvenuto Cellini, and his um, idea that the ideal man is an artist, a warrior, and a philosopher. And uh, I found out to everyone listening, Charlie's already heard my take on this as far as vet rep goes, but this was not the, this was not the, the germinating idea that from which sprang vet rep. But uh, after vet rep was up, I stumbled across that uh, and Benvenuto Cellini's ideas and was like, wow, that's interesting because that's actually a good succinct way of talking about what we're trying to do at vet rep. But uh, to, segue that back into the veteran celebrity thing. I think what, what we're seeing with the veteran celebrities is that warrior slash philosopher piece come out where, and, and honestly, you could look at Matt best and article 15 and go, look, there's, there's a lot of artistry in that also humor, humor is an art and, and their videos are hilarious. Um, and, and there, and I do think that is, while I would quibble with Benvenuto Cellini calling that the ideal man, I do think each one of those pillars, the artist, the warrior, and the philosopher, does the more you embrace all three, the more it enriches the others. And I and I do think that with the veteran celebrity uh, culture that's emerging, that's what you start to see. Uh, that in a positive light, that's what this could trend towards is that embrace of somebody going, look, I've done my years as the warrior that's left me with an operating system. Let's call it a philosophy that I think I can share with people um, that has a lot of best practices and real world, you know, uh, battle tested, combat approved uh, lessons learned that are worth sharing with people. And then if you're, and then if there is an artistic gene going through you, then you play off that. And what were the warrior merged into the philosopher now can finally result in the artist and, and in whatever that artistry is. And if it's making, you know, funny Instagram videos or whatever, then God bless, then there's that. Um, but I think that's the healthy, I think at its best. And mostly I don't see a lot of rubbish out there. I think generally when I see a veteran celebrity, uh, that's kind of what I see them doing is merging the artist, the warrior, and the philosopher together into some degree. 
especially with the artist piece. That's probably the weakest, but certainly the warrior and philosopher part. I think it's a great way to approach life. And I think if you can strike a balance between those two things, you, those three things, you'll probably be happier and healthier and probably live a longer life, be more satisfied with it. I think so. And I, and I think it, getting back to our point about messaging, I think that's what it does is it helps message because if you, I mean, not to rag on the Oprah Winfrey's of the world or the let's rag on the Ricky Lakes of the world, if you will. But, um, uh, but you know, if, if you're going to be out there dispensing kind of uh, matchbook cover advice to the world, um, it's great when that actually comes from uh, a real world extreme experience. You know, when Jocko Willing says discipline equals freedom and then goes into a multi-bullet point explanation of what that means, there you go, shit, that makes a lot That's of right. sense. I, I can see some some logic behind that. And, I, and, and then you're tying it to that experience that he's had. And I think that's, uh, you know, I'll, I'll take that over a Jerry Springer. Hey, be good to yourselves and each other. You know, like I, I think there, that levels up from just our pop philosophy that we tend to kick around. And I think there's a lot of value in that. And that I think is maybe the healthiest way for vets to message what it means to be a veteran. Absolutely. And Chris, at the end of the day, these young people, are going to look up to someone. So let's give them some, someone good to look up at. I'd rather have them look up to the good members of the veteran community than any number of other people who might not be as good for the country or for individuals as, as some of these vets that we just talked about. I agree. Charlie, uh, we got a whole nother show to do in the dangerously near future. <laughs> So uh, we'll, I think we'll wrap it here. But hey, brother, this was great, man. Um, uh, thanks a million for coming on and, and being the test jumper on this. Hey, Chris, thank you so much. I, I appreciate you letting me be the first one out the door on this. Just want to make sure that I, that I add the mandatory disclaimer that the opinions expressed on the show were my own and not a reflection of those of the United States Military Academy at West Point or the United States Army. And Chris, it's always a pleasure, brother. I could talk to you for hours and looking forward to seeing you soon on the Weekly Havoc. We'll do it. We'll do it all over again. Thanks, bro. We'll talk in a bit. All right, brother. All right. Hope you guys enjoyed episode one of Savage Wonder, a production of the Veterans Repertory Theater. Really appreciate your joining us. Stay in touch. Uh, You can always find us at vetrep.org. Again, our website is vetrep.org, V-E-T-R-E-P.org. Or you can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Veterans Repertory Theater. Or on Twitter, at Vet Rep Theater. Those are all the ways to stay in touch. Uh, the website is probably the best because uh, it'll have our Instagram feed on the website. But uh, any of those would be great. And hope you guys stay in touch and let us know how you like the episodes, uh, any guests that you'd like to see on, um, anything. It'd just be great to hear from you guys. Also, if you're on iTunes, a five-star review would be great. We always appreciate it, as well as your comments or any constructive criticism. But the five stars does help us, and we would appreciate it a lot if you could post that. I will also have show notes at savagewonder.podbean.com. Again, that's savagewonder.podbean.com. So a lot of ways for you to stay in touch with us. Uh, On this particular episode, We'll have show notes. We'll also have alibis for anything that I misstated or misremembered or something that needed more context, anything like that. Um, I don't think we did off the top of my head. Charlie is pretty experienced at 
doing this kind of thing and I have probably made a bulk of the mistakes that I needed to make already. So I can't remember off the top of my head if there's actually going to be a lot that we need to clarify. But if there is, uh, you can find it at savagewonder.podbean.com. As always, thanks to our producer, Mike Neal. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. See you next time when we'll dive further into the savage wonder of it all.